Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 21. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one to Tullus. They lay before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, did you see the TikTok trend that went viral in September about the Roman Empire? Uh, Women across the world were encouraged to ask their male counterparts how often they think about the Roman Empire. And minds were blown uh, when the most common answers included three to four times a week, or even every day. Why such a big deal? Basically because the Roman Empire was a big deal. Unprecedentedly, it ruled about 30% of the world's population. The historian Tom Holland has recently released a book called Pax, in which he chronicles the peace, the golden age of the Roman Empire, which overlaps with these events we read about in Acts. And riffing off the earlier historian, Edward Gibbon, he writes this. He said, this is the period in history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous. Lands that once prior to the establishment of Roman rule had been convulsed by internecine conflict, kingdom against kingdom, city against city, tribe against tribe, had come to lie, as Gibbon put it, under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. He continues, The sheer scale and duration of the peace that was imposed on the edge of Eurasia in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD remains unparalleled. Even today, no one can claim, as Caesar proudly did, that the Mediterranean is exclusively theirs. 
And this is the thing that shocked me the most. Um, Living conditions, the emeritus professor of economics at MIT has calculated, were better in the earlier Roman Empire than anywhere else and at any time else before the Industrial Revolution. Now, relics of the Roman Empire can still be um, found all over Europe, and they bring in billions of euros of tourist money every year, uh, with temples, colosseums, walls, amphitheatres, incredible feats of civil engineering to visit. And Holland concludes, to this day, whether in films, cartoons, or computer games, um, they serve as shorthand, not just for the heyday of the Roman Empire, but for civilization itself. And this evening in our passage, we are attending Christianity's trial before civilization. And does the proclamation of Jesus's kingdom belong on the biggest of public stages? The Apostle Paul is the Lord Jesus's representative and his life's work in proclaiming the kingdom is on trial before Rome, before civilization. He's not physically in Rome, but he's in Caesarea, a city built in dedication to Caesar named after Caesar, and before a representative of Caesar, um, the Roman governor, Felix. And we're going to see that this trial blows a hole in the idea that following Jesus is just a private matter you can keep to yourself. If HR departments understood this chapter, they'd understand why followers of Jesus can't keep quiet at work. If politicians, dictators, and autocrats understood this chapter, they would understand why they can't eliminate the Christian gospel entering their countries in one way or another. We're going to see that proclaiming Jesus' kingdom is a really big public deal because of resurrection hope, which challenges the whole world. So first, proclaiming Jesus' kingdom is a really big public deal. Now, after some quite staggering events, which you can read about in chapter 23, Paul ends up arriving in Caesarea with a 70-horseman bodyguard, and mounted on a horse himself. In one sense, he looks like a Category A prisoner. In another sense, he looks like a victorious general entering Caesar's city. And last week we saw he completed testifying to the facts about Jesus in Jerusalem. Now he comes to complete his testimony to Rome's representatives. That's because the hope of the people of God has now become the hope of the world. And I think it is important to notice the public scale of this because I find it anyway easy to slip into thinking that proclaiming Jesus was just a little bumbling movement in the first century. But right from the word go, as well as spreading from house to house, it was a big deal on the public stage. Paul and others had been proclaiming the gospel all over the Roman Empire, and it had caused a big public stir. But it's important to understand that in the right way. And Paul's accusers at the trial, we just read, they hired the top king's counsel to tell us to prosecute Paul. And it might not sound convincing to us, but he presents a very compelling case, pressing all the right buttons to alarm a Roman governor like Felix. Like Jesus, Paul is charged with insurrection. He is said to be leading the people in revolt against Caesar's rule and threatening the peace. These were serious enough allegations that could not be just brushed off and demanded a defense and which Paul duly gave. And his response, I think, is instructive for us. So verses 11 and 12. He says, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem 
and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. The kingdom of Jesus is not about rabble rising or a revolt inciting movement. It's not about political force. Um, I know historians will tell us that um, the Crusades, like many or all major historical events, are much more complicated than the simplistic narratives that are often attached to them. But what they have come to represent at least is diametrically opposed to authentic apostolic Christianity. The kingdom of Jesus in the age of proclamation never seeks to advance by force. Now, I won't actually um, conduct this poll, so don't worry. Um, But if I ask all of us in this room uh, to put our hands up if we know what the National Festival of Light was, um, I'd suggest that less than 5% of us would put up our hands. It was actually a very large political movement, uh, a moralistic campaign in the 1970s, and it was seeking to oppose the impact of the sexual revolution on public life that occurred in the 1960s. Most of us have never heard of it because it achieved precisely nothing. And yes, I hope followers of Jesus will be responsible citizens and seek to exercise their democratic rights for the good of their neighbours. And some believers will have a particular role in public service. But the Apostle Paul is not on trial for his attempts at direct social reform. That is not why Rome deployed a small army to bring him here. First and foremost, he's on trial for proclaiming a message. So why then is proclaiming Jesus' kingdom a really big public deal? Well, that's our second and more substantial point. And because of resurrection hope. Because of resurrection hope. And that's what Paul really wants to say in his defense and why following Jesus is a really big public deal. And the heart of it all is in verse 14 to 16 there. Let's look at that again. Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This is why Paul is on trial. He says it again in verse 21. It's the hope of the resurrection. And he makes clear it's not some invention of his. It's been the hope of God's people for a thousand years before he was born. As he said, it was written about in the law and the prophets, which is shorthand for the Old Testament. And the resurrection in the Bible is a bit like the kingdom of Jesus' version of the Roman peace, but on a global and cosmic scale. It speaks of the day when the Lord himself will return, where he will deal with all human evil and rebellion, which spoils his world, and will restore all things to how they're meant to be. And those who align with him, um, he says, will get to live with him in a perfectly restored world forever. And that is the hope of the resurrection. Now, on a couple of occasions, I've been given uh, a few minutes to explain why I have a hope in the Lord Jesus. And I've, when I've had a few minutes, I've tried to explain it with the logic of the resurrection. And I've said something along these lines. I've said, firstly, I don't believe that something came from nothing or that the universe is simply a cosmic soup of time and matter and chance. 
that this world and everyone who lives in it are simply accidents, but that the universe was in fact created by a creator. Secondly, I don't believe that we live in an amoral universe, that the innate sense of good and evil is simply an evolutionary byproduct, but that right and wrong are real things, that what we do, how we treat others, really matters, and that we're accountable to God, our creator, in how we live. And putting those two things together, there'll come a day when we'll all stand before our creator and give an account for our lives. And that is actually a really good thing in one sense, because it means in the end, justice will be done. The atrocities we witnessed on the news recently, or individuals who've done unspeakable evil, they will face the perfect justice of God. But if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, and we all know that we haven't lived a just life before our creator, that we'll not be able to stand ourselves before the perfect justice of God. That rightly, on our own merit, uh, we'd be in the resurrection of the unjust rather than the just, cut off from life uh, with God in his restored world. But here is the new thing about the New Testament, the thing that turns the world upside down. And by his own resurrection, which anticipates that final resurrection to come, Jesus Christ has proven himself to be the creator and judge of all. When we say we will meet our maker, Jesus says we will meet him. But more than that, he came to earth and lived a perfectly just life. Yet on the cross, he paid the penalty the whole world deserves for our rebellion against our creator. And he offers to the whole world that anyone can identify with him and that he will take on our injustice, unjustness, but that we can receive his just verdict so that anyone who trusts in him will, based on his merit, can be included in the resurrection of the just. And the grounds of that hope, uh, the way to start investigating it, is Jesus' resurrection. It is an investigatable fact on the table of history, and I'm convinced it's true, and I think it's worth a proper investigation by everyone. And I sometimes say, if you'd like to find out more, um, I'd love to show you how to do that, or I'd love to point you in the right direction. And we heard some examples of that, didn't we, a moment ago. And that's something of what I uh, try and say about the hope of the resurrection. I just had a few minutes. I'm sure many people in this room would do a much better job um, than I've just done. But handily for us, uh, if that wasn't that helpful, even more excitingly than Disney, uh, we've had a live-action illustration of resurrection hope for us this evening. And because this hope is actually what the symbol of baptism is all about. It's a visible representation of what Ethan, Daniel, and Rachel have already done spiritually. I'm uniting with Jesus in his death, where he deals with our sin. And that's going into the water. And William helped us with that, didn't he, with how long he held them uh, under the water. Um, that's right, it represents our death with the Lord Jesus. And then uniting in Jesus' life, that's coming out of the water. So united to Jesus... On the day of the resurrection to come, and they know they'll be raised with him and with all the just. And that's the hope of the resurrection. And this is the central pillar of Paul's defense. 
uh, explains all his actions, why he's upset the religious, and why he's gone around the empire speaking about Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection began a revolution in the worship of God. Um, Paul now worships God according to the way of Jesus and the resurrection hope that Jesus has begun. Now anyone can come to Jesus and know the hope of the resurrection, anticipating that future day. So Paul's entire existence and the way he worships God now is to share with and encourage as many people as he can uh, in that hope of possible uh, in every place. And because Paul is convinced of the truth of the resurrection and its implications, he feels compelled to make that known. And that's what he's on about in verse 16. So he says, um, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, it might be hard to believe in my case, but between my wife, Abby, and I, uh, we have some friends. And uh, on occasion, uh, we've invited some of them around for dinner at our house uh, with the expressed aim of sharing something of Jesus' kingdom with them. And um, as we sat down for chat, I often say something, or I have said something like this. I say, thank you so much for coming. It's really great um, you could join us. Um, you know Abby and I are convinced followers of the Lord Jesus. And because what we think Jesus says is true and is really important, um, we'd feel dishonest and, in fact, a lack of integrity if we didn't at some point try and explain to you and why we think it's so important and why it matters for you. And then we might have asked someone to speak about the Lord Jesus or we'd share something ourselves. And um, why do we say that? Because how can we have a clear conscience if we care about people, if we trust what Jesus says, and we haven't given them the opportunity to respond to Jesus' invitation of resurrection life? Or as a church here, we're based right in the heart of the city of London, and it would be cosmically criminal, wouldn't it, if some of our collective efforts as a church family weren't trying to proclaim the gospel um, and the hope of the Lord Jesus to the half a million people who come uh, and work near here every day. And the word for take pains there in verse 16, um, it's, the, it's the word used for striving uh, in training, uh, for example, for, in the athletic world. At the moment, I'm uh, attempting to train for a half marathon, and it sometimes feels like my body is falling apart. Um, but when you get an insight into a professional athlete, it's quite something, isn't it? So you might have heard of Eliud Kipchoge. Um, he has just actually had his world record in the marathon uh, beaten. But for the past decade, he has been the best marathon runner in the world. He precisely manages what he eats. He, does, um, he records his sleep. Um, he runs twice a day, uh, at least, usually adding up to 126 to 134 miles per week. He also does gym work and core workouts most days, stretching, massage, anything to get an edge on the competition. And he organizes his whole yearly calendar, his whole weekly calendar, um, to maximize his performance. And even at 40 years old, he's aiming to break the two-hour bar two um, two barrier sorry, <laughs> uh, in the marathon. <laughs> and, and that's the attitude that Paul has in proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. He takes pains. He strives. He organizes his life 
so that he can have a clear conscience before God and man in light of the resurrection of the dead. And that is what Christian worship is all about now, now that Jesus has brought the beginning of the hope of the resurrection early. And working with other believers to encourage each other in the hope of the resurrection and partnering together to make that hope known to others. God's glory, uh, his reputation, is magnified as he rescues people from death to life for eternity and through Jesus. And worship is doing what we can to magnify the glory of his name. And that is the way of the righteous as we wait for the final day of resurrection. Paul represents that revolution himself in the offering he brings to Jerusalem. So in verse 17, and Paul explains that after years of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, he says, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. Now, in a previous life, Paul would have brought an animal sacrifice as offerings uh, to the temple in his acts of worship. But this time around, as we saw last week, his offering is people, not Um, just to clarify that he brought people to sacrifice instead of animals. But symbolically, he brought a representative group of people from all over the world who had trusted in Jesus for resurrection life. Jesus has already been sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. So now the offering that God is looking for is people who responded to his call of repentance. And that is what worship is all about Now the resurrection hope has come early in Jesus. Now those of us who have trouble sleeping at night uh, will no doubt have tried various strategies uh, to get off to sleep. There's myriads of advice on there. I've watched quite a lot of YouTube videos on the matter. Uh, Evening routines, products, techniques, and from weighted blankets to whale music or whatever helps people. I've actually been tempted uh, to buy and invest in a special machine. I'm not even sure what it's called. Um, But it puts a pad, you put it as a pad under uh, your sheet, and there's a silent uh, machine which pumps water through the pad. And it keeps you apparently at the perfect temperature uh, for sleeping, which apparently is 17 degrees Celsius uh, for most people. But often for me, and I don't know if this is the case for you, Problems with sleep are often more psychological than they are physical. But one habit I've got into in the last few years, on many nights, if not most nights, as my head hits the pillow, is not actually to think about the Roman Empire, um, but to think about the resurrection. You might think that's a bit strange, but in that I genuinely have found real peace. I'm reminded that one day I will stand before the Lord Jesus, which is a real comfort to me. No matter what has happened that day, no matter what worries me, no matter what I've done, knowing I'm united to Jesus and remembering the resurrection to come gives me real perspective on all those things and real comfort. And the more I've gotten to know Jesus better, as I've seen him and got to know him through his word in the Bible, who he is and what he's done, the more I look forward to meeting him on that day. But well as a comfort, it is also a gentle challenge because it's also constantly pushing me to realign my priorities. Jesus has brought the possibility of resurrection hope to everyone. And in my very feeble, and I mean very feeble efforts, I do want to be shaping and organizing my life 
striving to encourage other people in that hope and introducing others to him. Not that those efforts in any way earn my own resurrection, but I do want to please the Lord Jesus to play any tiny part I can in bringing glory to his name and also to do the best and by people that I know and meet. Proclaiming Jesus' kingdom is a really big public deal because of resurrection hope. And the last point is simply to state the obvious, which is it challenges the whole world. Because everyone will face the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it is a challenge to Rome, as well as the quote-unquote religious, to all of civilization, not just a select few. Well, what have the Romans ever done for us? Tom Holland tells us sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, free wa- uh, fresh water systems, public health. And what about in Acts? It's a common observation to note in the book of Acts that although Paul does in fact go on trial before Caesar, Acts actually finishes while Paul is under house arrest awaiting that trial in Rome. And the question is, why is that? Well, presumably that trial has yet to take place. But also, we've essentially already had that content of what the trial would contain in these Caesarea defences. Paul, and the proclaiming of the kingdom he represents, is innocent of direct insurrection, but his message of the hope of the resurrection is relevant to all. And that means it must be proclaimed by all believers, wherever they are. Because that, that is what it means to serve and worship God. Now Jesus has been resurrected. The trial shows that Rome is a big deal, but the resurrection is a much bigger deal. That Caesar is the judge of the Roman Empire, but Jesus Christ is the judge of the whole world. And what matters is not that Paul is proven innocent again before Caesar, but that the kingdom of Jesus is proclaimed in Rome. And if Paul can proclaim the gospel before Caesar, there's nowhere that we shouldn't in one way or another, as followers of Jesus working together and give it a go ourselves as well. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection, which can be a certain hope for all those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Please would you increase our confidence in the reality of Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection to come, and our confidence to keep proclaiming Jesus' kingdom publicly so that we worship you as we encourage others to keep going or to find hope for the first time in the Lord Jesus. Amen.